Welcome to The ACO Show, a podcast about value-based healthcare and the people who make it happen. Last week at Allidate headquarters, we had a panel discussion for Hispanic Heritage Month to hear about some of the specific challenges in navigating the healthcare system faced by the Latino community from both the point of view of providers and patients. Two of our guests joined Josh and Joe afterwards to talk more about it. Thanks to our producers, Aaron Wing, and the newest member of our podcast team, Hannah Posner. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and I lead adoption and training here at Allidade. I'm Josh Israel. I'm a physician and a medical director at Allidade. We are delighted today to welcome Dr. Juan Duran, who is a third year resident in pediatric neurology at Columbia University. Uh, and Lucia Zagara, who is the Director of Community Health Programs at CHEER, which stands for Community Health and Empowerment Through Education and Research. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. So I thought we would just start with terminology. My kids are always correcting me and I'm always getting it wrong. Um, the terms Hispanic, Latino, Latinx, what should we use? Um, so it's really hard for me to identify myself with any of those terms um, because I feel like uh, if you look at me, I, I may look more like a, uh, somebody from the Andes. So I like more the term Inca. When people ask me, you know, what's your background? I say I'm more Inca from the Andes of Peru. Um, and that's why I feel like those terms are a bit contradictive because the Latino for me is somebody that comes from a Latin, con- um, the Latin speaking country and there's really nobody speaking Latin. Um, so it's hard for us that come from South America to identify us well, with any of these terms. And the his, Hispanic, I think it's more meant to identify folks that speak Spanish. Um, however, it's really hard for us Latinos to identify us with those terms as well, because we speak different, um, different ways of speaking Spanish. Like, for example, in Peru, we speak Castilian Spanish. Um, and then in Colombia, they have a different, um, uh, different, different accents and different uh, tonal uh, uh, different different ways of speaking the language, um, so yeah, I guess it depends on how somebody is is being, uh, um, some how somebody feels comfortable with, um, in terms of language. You're not making this easy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it is really hard to come to a country and have to fit in the you know their norms and fit in the, fit in the titles. You know, filling out the census forms. You know, um, h- how do I, I? I am not white. But I am also not his. I don't feel I'm Hispanic. I'm. I don't also feel that I'm Latina. You know, but this is what everybody else says I should be. So I have to accommodate myself to fitting in this country. Yep, I think just just like what you said, it, it's really hard to kind of fit into one box when uh, you you come from a Caribbean country where your descendants are from, you know, Western Africa and Europe and. Uh, to kind of fit into one mold uh, for the entire Latino population in the U.S. is is, is definitely uh, difficult. Uh, I think Latinx, the the X on there, it's it's to, for it to be a more kind of gender normative term, so it kind of include uh, women and 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 men. Um, but uh, I think I'm not too sure. <laughs> I don't know. A long story short, but. Uh, I'm not, I don't know the answer. To I mean, I'm at a loss now how to, how to ask any of these questions without yeah. a term. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Juan and Lucia, uh, a question for you both. Um, uh, one of the most important things here at Allidade is taking care of the whole patient. We talk about mm-hmm. uh, encouraging our providers through population health and data and software to really wrap your arms around the patient, 
every touch point they have with the healthcare system. Um, and part of the reason that we are so eager to celebrate things like uh, Hispanic Heritage Month and, and other things is because it gives us a broader picture of everyone's cultural background, but particularly the patients in our practices. Um, so I'd love to hear from you how recognizing and understanding and appreciating that culture allows people in the healthcare system to take care of their whole patient in that process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have patients uh, who come from all over the world. Um, they're, we, I take care of patients in, in New York City, which is uh, one of the most diverse cities in the world. Yeah, but until people go home, uh, it's actually a, a, can be very segregated in some ways. Uh, people live in areas of highly concentrated poverty, um, particularly in the Washington Heights region. Um, there's pockets of poverty that are much higher than the overall citywide rate. Um, we have uh, patients that, you know, although they're, they're citizens and uh, live here in the United States and have been here for the majority of their lives, they're binational in many ways. They have a lot, the majority of their families are back in the Dominican Republic and they often will go back and, and, and forth every, every couple of months um, to stay in touch with their, their loved ones. And there's a lot of cultural traditions and, and customs that um, kind of are persist because we ha patients have such close ties uh, with, their, with their families back home. Um, for example, I, a lot of my patients, and now that I'm also seeing adults, uh, in the hospital, they, they described to me that 30, 40 years ago, they never, the concept of going to a doctor, um, to treat you with medication for a condition was foreign to them. They relied on, um, herbal teas at home, um, whenever they had nausea or a pain, uh, they never went to a, a physician in their community uh, that was treating them for, for this problem. Uh, so the, the idea, just the whole concept of seeing a physician uh, to manage your health issues is a bit foreign for some people too. And I think that's something that we, we will forget. Um, but it's, it's still true, especially for the, some of the generations that we're, we're still currently treating that they've never seen a physician regularly before coming to the, to the U.S., Lucia, can you tell us about the work that your organization does? Uh, yes. So we manage several community-based programs, and we use a bottom-up approach where we do a community needs assessment, follow the, what the county or a community is telling us, and then we build programs uh, from that. Uh, for example, in this particular program I'm going to talk to you about is the Healthy Food Access Program in Long Branch. And we basically looked at the community and we saw that most of our community members had diabetes type 2. And where's Long Branch? Uh, Long Branch is in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And basically, we wanted to figure out what was the main problem. And the main problem, of course, was access to healthy foods. Um, so with this program, we provide people uh, with 12 weeks of free fruits and vegetables, along with the support of a community health worker. And we have seen that 67% of our participants have dropped their A1C levels um, after the three-month program intervention. Um, so I really appreciate and I want to say thank you for all you do because this holistic approach is something that is missing from a lot of physicians I know. And I know that not many people are having training nutrition um, because some some of our 
patients come to us and say, my doctor never talked to me about this. My doctor says, you know, I need to do this, but they're not talking to them about how to eat better. Um, and as um, Juan was saying before, is that we're coming from a different story. We bring different issues. We bring different um, perhaps traumas too. And there is really no one way to tackle it unless you look at the whole picture. Um, in terms of mental health, I feel like that's one some, one thing that a lot of people may not see, that if we don't value ourselves, if we don't see ourselves as somebody worth getting better, worth getting the money, paying the money for, we are never going to go seek medical attention and pay for the medications that we need. If, if that metformin is very unattainable and that it... And if it means that I'm not going to be able to buy my kids shoes, I'm going, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to take the medication. And it doesn't matter if I'm going to end up in the emergency room because I am not seen as a valuable being um, because my kids need me. So it, it's, I think it's a perspective thing. And of course it has a lot to do with self-esteem. When we come to this country, a lot of, a lot of people come to this country just to have a better future, not a better present. And it's really, really hard for our community to put themselves first. Um, and I see, and, and of course, you know, like if you want to build wealth, it's not going to take one generation. It's going to take a few generations to build wealth. So that's why it is so much to focus on the children and the future generations, because we want them to succeed. We want them to get better. We want them to buy a home. I may be renting or my parents, my family may be renting, but that's with hopes that our children won't have to rent. Um, so yeah, th this, this whole, you know, social determinants of health is big as well for our community. You know, that's, um, the traumas, um, maybe some of us are coming from countries that where there is a lot of violence and maybe that I've never talked about violence before with anybody. Maybe that, um, physician is the first person that's heard me say, you know, I am scared at night or, um, I don't want to go talk to somebody about my problems because, you know, I, maybe I don't feel comfortable sharing. Maybe domestic violence is an issue. And we bring a lot of myths. Like, you know, Juan was saying, you know, there is a, sometimes people don't trust physicians because sometimes we've never even seen a physician before. Um, I used to work at a homeless shelter. And the first thing that was really, really hard for me was to get people to understand what a support group was. It's not a class. It's a group where you're coming to get support on a regular basis. And people always call it class. And I'm like, no, you guys are supporting each other. Um, and just to identify one issue, it was really, really hard. It was always, you know, family, um, poverty and, and health. So it all comes together. And so you have to be open and to identify several issues and work with them. Many of our listeners are physicians across the country or people who work uh, in direct patient care uh, in the clinical environment. Um, what would you say to them is the best approach, uh, particularly overcoming things like language barriers uh, for, for patients who come in and English isn't their first language or they don't speak English at all? What, what role does language play and what's the best way to, to go right at that with your patients? Yeah, language is uh, an incredibly important barrier that affects many of our patients. Um, and as physicians, it's important to advocate uh, sometimes to, to the hospitals themselves to ensure that we have access to uh, high quality interpretation services and also to um, not just the uh, in interpreters, but also 
um, medical information that's uh, been translated into different languages um, so that patients can go home and, you know, digest the diagnoses that they were just giving and, and, and uh, talk about it with their family members so that they all have an understanding of, you know, what are their current, what are their current medical issues. Um, many times uh, we, uh, we assume that patients uh, kind of understand uh, what it is that we're, we're saying to them. They, they'll nod there and say, you know, yes, yes, I, I, I get it. Uh, but it's important to use strategies like teachback, um, where you ask patients, you know, tell me what, what was it that, that we kind of just discuss what's the, the main objective here. Um, and that's, that's really a good way to, to assess for their understanding. Um, not just taking a, a yes and a nod for granted, because many times patients, if they, if they don't understand something because they don't have a grasp of the language, it's something that you're, you're a bit ashamed of. You, you don't want to, you don't want people to know about um, your, your, your difficulties with uh, English language. Maybe you, maybe you don't want your doctor to know that you may not know how to read or that numbers, you know, are, are difficult for you. You may not know how to count. People will try to conceal that, that, that type of information from, from a physician. I think it's it's our job to kind of understand you know which patients are particularly at, at risk and and to try to make it easier for them to to understand um, and manage their their chronic medical issues, which are difficult for everyone, but especially for uh, patients who you know have so many obstacles ahead of them already to, to manage these issues. I'll tell you one thing I've seen on the doctor end of things that I don't think I've ever seen it really addressed, which is a clinic or a provider may decide I'm going to do what I feel is the right thing and work with underserved populations or populations that don't speak English. Um, I'm even going to get a translator. And then you can see on your schedule someone that doesn't speak English and you sort of groan because it's going to take twice as long and you're not going to get paid twice as much. And so hospitals will do everything except reimburse better for that double time mm -hmm. that it that it takes for a translator. Have you seen anybody try to address that meaningfully? So the, a perfect scenario where physicians are under extreme time constraints and may not have the, the time available to access uh, an, an interpreter over the phone is the emergency department. Uh, one of the ways in which uh, many hospitals try to circumvent this is by having inpatient interpreters there available um, that are multiple inpatient uh, interpreters available to be there and um, talk to patients directly, not have to wait to connect with uh, over the phone service. Um, although these, some of these services do work very well. Um, in my experience, it only takes about 45 seconds to connect with uh, an interpreter, but in a world where every second counts and that, that can definitely delay you. Um, well, what I mean is even above and beyond the time connecting to a translator, right. simply everything being said twice. Yeah. It slows down a busy clinic. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, but I think if it was if my mother, I'd want to make sure that, you know, she, she, the physician understands everything that she has to say. Oh, I, uh, of course. Yeah. I just I feel like I don't want it, uh, the system to depend on people's goodwill mm -hmm. for that. Right. And that's what I, I fear the system is right now. Yeah. Although, interestingly, Juan, you, I also uh, trained at Columbia Presbyterian. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's... There's such a high density of Spanish speakers in Washington Heights mm -hmm. um, that it you don't even have a 
the opportunity. Now, obviously, it's different than an outpatient clinical situation where you're billing for your time, but um, it's such a part of the workflow to have a translator on the phone or in person, particularly in my situation. I didn't have a, almost no Spanish, mm-hmm. um, which was almost better because then I didn't fumble my way through a bad abdominal exam in Spanish, yeah. uh, and I felt no you know, I felt no personal shame in using an interpreter and I didn't want to miss anything. Mm -hmm. And one of the illustrative things with that was, you know, doctors, as some people may know, and I feel some license to say this, um, can, uh, get ahead of their skis, let's say sometimes. And people in that hospital would think, um, oh, I know enough Spanish to get by. Mm -hmm. And then they would see one of my colleagues, uh, I'm thinking of another surgical resident that I worked with, who was a, a, a native of Mexico and moved here in his teens mm-hmm. uh, to go to, to college um, and see him interact with a patient in Spanish mm-hmm. as a Spanish as his first language. Mm-hmm. And you realize the depth of that conversation mm-hmm. and you think twice about puddling your way through in like a, a weekend of Rosetta Stone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think the statistic is that one in six Americans identifies as Hispanic now and that one out of 20 physicians is Hispanic. Um, so Juan, can you share your, your journey into medicine with us? Sure. Um, so I grew up in, in New York city, um, mostly in, in the Bronx and in Queens. And I grew up in a predominantly uh, immigrant household. My family immigrated here from the Dominican Republic in the 1980s. And I, I was the first, uh, member of my family to be interested in a, in a career in medicine. Uh, my family, uh, my mom and my, my four sisters, they're, have been incredibly supportive throughout this entire journey. But growing up, you know, there are some questions, obviously, about the the path to medicine that they weren't uh, able to answer. So in, in those situations, you know, I relied really heavily on on mentors and professors to kind of guide me along the way um, and uh, kind of applying toward applying myself and also uh, meeting uh, all of the requirements necessary to to become a, a physician, since it's a it's a long journey. Um, so, pipeline programs are uh, programs designed to help uh, underrepresented minority students that are interested in the the medical field, um, either and also the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, uh, to kind of increase uh, rep- diversity and representation w- within those fields. Uh, I was a part of one particular program called the C-STEP program, which is the Collegiate Science and Technology Entry Program. Um, and I worked with them since I was a, a college student, and they provided excellent academic um, development, professional development opportunities, as well as uh, tutoring and shadowing opportunities to help students like myself and uh, other minority students interested in the health professions with uh, ex- a lot of exposure in order to make uh, an informed decision about the the healthcare profession that we were interested in and wanted to go into. So we didn't just learn about uh, uh, the medical specialty. We would shadow optometrists. We would shadow uh, uh, researchers. Um, we had a, a week at where we did research with uh, alongside researchers at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Um, we had uh, summer programs at um, uh, University of Albany in the organic chemistry department to just learn all the different ways in which you can use your your skills, your basic science foundation to, to help 
patient and, and to benefit humanity. Um, and the, the program, um, has been very, extremely successful. It's been around for now almost, uh, 25 years. And, uh, each year there's a really high percentage of students who are able to, uh, that make it to, to medical school and professional schools, which also include, um, engineering and, and law school. Um, Nice to hear about. You know, we we certainly are aware of the uh, the headwinds facing first generation Americans, mm-hmm. but uh, nice to hear that there's some some tailwinds mm-hmm. helping along the way as well. Yep, and there's there's various different uh, pipeline programs. Most of them are based uh, in institutions of higher learning, uh, either at the collegiate level or medical schools. Um, there are some programs uh, in the Northeast, like the summer medical, dental, and enrichment program, uh, which has uh, summer programs in uh, Yale School of Medicine, UMDMJ, uh, John Hopkins, uh, Columbia, and also Einstein, uh, which really opens the doors for about 50 to 100 students every summer, um, where they have opportunities to shadow physicians, uh, work on their personal statements for when they apply to medical school, um, and really uh, gives them an opportunity to see what our all the, the potential avenues that they can take with their uh, basic science foundation. Lucia, one question I have for you is, having uh, moved here uh, from somewhere else, uh, what about the difference in the way we treat uh, healthcare and health outcomes here versus where you came from, and then what can we do better here to support better outcomes for Hispanic populations, but for everybody, really? Um, so I really, really like the healthcare in this country. I know that we still have a long way to go to be where we want to be. Um, but, um, thinking of what, you know, where I grew up, where you had to wait hours for your one o'clock appointment that 60 people also had the one o'clock appointment, um, to come in here and to wait at most 20, 30 minutes. For me, it was like, wow, (laughs) this is really cool. Um, so I know that a lot of people had, you know, similar experiences, you know, the farther you are from the city, the more difficult in the more rural areas, of course, you're going to have less access to healthcare. You're lucky if you have a nurse practitioner, um, you're lucky if there's a hospital within an hour dis- uh, distance to where you are. So the disparities in South America and Latin America are larger. Um, so when I came here, I think just everything was, you know, having to learn the system. Everything is, it was all about the system. How do you get into this whole health insurance? I, I moved to California first. So there was another layer of, um, of things to go through there. Um, so it's, you get, have to get used to the system, the forms, how, how do you seek for a, a medical provider when you don't have insurance, when you first come here, when you're a tourist, there's a lot of different things versus, you know, in, in our countries, it's just, you know, private or state. Um, and here you have to present a number, a number of documents to be seen. Um, I think that just gave me anxiety every single time I had to go to a new doctor. It gives me anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> so I can only um, imagine if it was totally new. Yeah. So, and you don't understand the words. I mean, yeah. you know, you you know, the, I speak English, you know, the language, but still, you know, the forms, which one they say, oh, you got to fill all this up and sign here. I'm like, oh gosh. And there's 60 of this, you know, for your first consult. Um, so I, this is what I liked from this area, or at least, you know, the fact that, for example, I, I go to Kaiser Permanente. So you don't have to fill out those forms for every single physician that you see uh, versus, um, you know, if you didn't have a one 
one-stop shop like that. Um, so, and I think that's demoralizing sometimes for, you know, you, you are getting out of work, you show up to, to an appointment and they tell you, you have to show up an hour early or mm -hmm. 30 minutes early to fill out all these documents. And then you, you think that you're, you're going to fail the test, you know, <laughs> cause it's, it's kind of like the first step to get you in. Um, and then there's always something that you don't know. Like for example, like if you do have insurance and sometimes like the, the doctor that they don't tell you exactly how much they're going to cover. Uh, when you're when you're not in and I want to stop shop like say Kaiser um and I feel like that one right there I, I always tell you know people like that's not fair mm. you know I want to know how much things are going to cost before I choose what service I want you know what service provider I want to get if if you're going to charge me double as much for the same surgery I'm going to go with the physician that charge me cheaper you know that's what we uh we usually do and and it's really hard for you to have a sense of how much it's going to cost if they don't tell you up front. They say, oh, we have to send this to insurance, but you need the surgery now and you need to get this done. And I, I can only tell you how much the physician is going to cost you, but I don't know how much the surgery center is going to charge you. So it's just, you know, trying to put the puzzle together of who's charging me for what, what is the insurance going to cover me? And um, am I going to be able to afford this? So it is really, really, I think that's, you know, one of the hardships um, in terms of navigating the healthcare system. Um, it might be better in quality. Of course, we have, you know, better doctors than the ones at home. Um, but it's always, you know, there's no upfront fee. Whereas in our countries, a, uh, I don't know, a, um, a cold poscopy is going to cost $60, for example. Mm -hmm. And you know exactly that that's how much you have to save and that's how much you're going to pay. Here, you know, you're going to get a bill most likely in right. a month or two for something that they didn't tell you. And that's something actually we've talked about just system wide on this podcast and here at Allidade and, and elsewhere. Um, we had Elizabeth Rosenthal on as a guest and she writes, she's made essentially a whole career off of talking about this, things like surprise medical billing and the way uh, the system works and doesn't work for patients and physicians um, in that process. So yeah, I think that's very interesting. And I think, um, spot on, you know, to say <laughs> the biggest challenge here is navigating the systems, the multiple systems involved with that. We've spoken some on the show in the past about implicit bias in the medical system. And I'd love to hear both uh, your sense of how that might affect Hispanics as they work through the medical system and then, and then what can be done about it. You know, I, I know that the institutional response is often to have a training or two on that. But I, I will tell you as a psychiatrist, I would be very surprised if somebody who is not in touch with their own um, unconscious racism is going to be fixed by, you know, a lecture or two on that. So I wonder what your thoughts are. Sure. Uh, so implicit bias is something that um, actually people think it may be on the rise despite uh, patients and, and physicians describing more uh, egalitarian attitudes. Um, it's something that we know, um, exists in all, a lot of specialties in, in medicine, uh, not just in adult medicine, but also in, in pediatrics. And now we're also learning that it has direct effects on our patient's perception of the care that they receive. It has effects on our, uh, physician's, uh, medical decision-making and also likely is contributing um, in more ways than we know uh, towards patient outcomes ultimately and contributing towards the, the uh, continuation of many uh, healthcare disparities in, in, our, in our country. 
Um, and to your question about what we can kind of do to, to resolve this, since a lecture um, once a year may not necessarily get at the root cause of, of why this issue persists. I think, I think it, the important thing is, uh, one, making sure that all physicians recognize that this implicit bias is a real thing and that it actually um, is something that um, may be affecting the way that they make their, their medical decisions um, because they wouldn't be aware of it otherwise. I think that's the, the biggest issue with an implicit bias, that it's an unconscious bias that um, you wouldn't be aware of if it wasn't for um, these, these different assessments, like the implicit association test um, that looks for your, um, that can, can, is able to measure these implicit biases since um, its self-report is not a, a reliable means to, to assess that for that. Um, and some, some of the strategies that have been recommended for physicians to use really all involve, about, all involve um, humanizing your patient, getting to know them on a, a personal level, um, maybe taking a more extensive social history um, to recognize that this isn't, you know, just your, your patient with diabetes, this is your patient with diabetes who also owns six, six parakeets and loves them more than she loves her kids, you know? Uh, and, and then... That get, part might not help. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but I think it, it's really important to get to know our patients on that, that personal level um, because then they feel like, you're not just a physician who's caring for them, but is also who also cares about them. And you're more likely, I think they're more likely to come back and see you again and to take your recommendations uh, more seriously and, and take their medications and um, manage their chronic medical issues if they have a physician they feel that cares about them, that they can trust. Thank you very much to Dr. Juan Duran, PGY3 resident at Columbia University Medical Center, and Lucia Zagara, the Director of Community and Health Programs at CHEER, the Community Health Empowerment through Education and Research.